I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, page 716 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help. We're going to read in just a second or two from verse 46 to the end of the chapter. Mark, chapter 10, verse 46. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. And follow Jesus along the road. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word and give us understanding of it. If you would just pray with me, please. Father, we give you great glory for the privilege of public worship. And we're going to ask for your help so that we can understand this text clearly and respond to it appropriately as fitting for children of you, the living God. As always, God, our need is great. As always, my task this morning, far, far beyond my ability. Therefore, we need you to grab hold of this moment. And please, God, do not let the evil one come and steal the word so that we don't understand it. And please, God, don't let us have a shallowness of heart so that in hearing the room, we very quickly bloom, but we quickly fade away when difficulty and persecution comes in light of the word. And please, God, don't let life's worries and riches and the deceitfulness of wealth and and the desire for other things come in and choke the word so that we bear no fruit. Rather, give us noble hearts, liberal, liberal hearts, God, so that in hearing, we may actually produce fruit, some 30, some 60, and maybe, God, under your guardian grace, some 100-fold. We ask this, as always, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, when our daughter was a tiny little girl receiving what was probably her very first eye exam, she um, looked into a refractor. That's the thing that you look at the symbols and come forth. Well, this time, instead of letters, they used symbols because she was a tiny little girl. So, for example, when they put a square before her eyes, she saw it and she said, square. And when a circle was set before her eyes, because she was such a genius, she saw it and she said, circle. However, when a cross was set before her eyes, she saw the cross and then she said, the body of the Christ, to which, right, that's what the optometrist responded, but she had like a real thick southern draw, and she said, oh, honey, you know, and what did you say? And my daughter answered her as only she could, the body of the Christ. (laughs) It was a really telling moment for two reasons. One, because it was kind of cool that she said what she said. And two, because her mother and father were just beaming with pharisaical pride, 
If you were in the car on the way home, it was like, you are such a great father. I'm like, no, no, baby, you are such a great mother. I mean, maybe, maybe 2% of the kids that are Christian in the world probably would have said that, but, you know, we got one of those. So, you know, praise God. But anyway, to the doctor, it was a cross, but to my daughter, it was the body of the Christ. So to her, there was more than met the eye. And if you think about it, that is the case with so many things. There is more than meets the eye. <clears throat> and it is exactly the case here in this story this morning. All right. Which takes us right to our first point, which, as you can imagine, is there's more than meets the eye. So to begin with, as, as you read this passage, this is the last miracle that Jesus will do. So the opportunity that this man will have to be helped is limited. There's nothing before this, there's nothing after this, which will find opportunity for this man to be helped by Jesus. Jesus is on a one-way trip to Jerusalem. He's just passing through Jericho. He's not going to come back. And so this made me think all week. It made me think because I was taught a long, long time ago that every time I step behind this box, I am to remember that I'm a dying man speaking to dying men and women. So this is what I wonder this morning. I wonder if there's going to be anybody here this morning, and this is going to be your last opportunity. You're going to hear the gospel, and this is going to be the last time that you're going to have the chance to respond. And I promise you, I promise you, I'm not trying to frighten you in any way. I simply say this because it's so easy to live with the idea that our lives will go on forever, and that we can hold off on all the claims of Jesus until whenever. But our whenever is actually a never. And it's so sad. Because we don't live forever. And oftentimes we know this. Oftentimes when the end of our life does come, it comes unannounced. And that's why the Bible says, today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Don't presume that you're going to get another chance. That's why the call of the gospel is always in the present tense. Now, now. And the promise in God's word is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so here we have the true story of a man who grabbed hold of that opportunity, unsure if that moment would ever come again, and he cried out for mercy. And he got it. Would to God that be any of us here in need of Jesus Christ this morning? Now, as I said, Mark has given us here the final healing of this gospel. And interestingly, this is the first time when an actual name has been attached to the person that has been healed. Now, the names of relatives in the gospel at times have been given to us, but the actual name of the person? No. Verse 46, you'll see this if your Bible's open. Bartimaeus and his father's name is also given. Timaeus. And that's why Mark says he's called Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. In fact, it's so interesting that there's more than meets the eye in his name because his name means at least two things, either highly prized or unclean. Think about it. Highly prized. That's what we are made in God's image. But we come into this world, what? Unclean. And you, so, you see, verse 46, Bartimaeus is blind. But again, there's more than meets the eye because there are other people who are blind in this story as well. And that is of fundamental importance. In fact, if you don't see that, then you're going to misunderstand not only this section, but you'll probably misunderstand this gospel. And this is what I mean. The last time a blind person was, was healed was back in the 22nd verse of chapter 8. In fact, you could just turn back there just to make sure I'm telling you the truth. 
And what made that miracle so unique was that Jesus healed that person in two steps, right? So the blind man was there before Jesus. Step one, he saw men like trees. And then step two, he saw everything clearly. Meaning, this is incredibly rich symbolism which Jesus is using here. And that was due to the fact that disciples were having a tremendous time trying to rightly see who Jesus is. And why did Jesus come? And what does it mean when a person follows him? In other words, their spiritual sight was coming slow in stages. In fact, in the story before the healing and the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus just asked them straightforward. Third sentence of verse 17, do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Again, verse 18 of chapter 8, do you have eyes but fail to see? And of course, the answer to those rhetorical questions should have been, yes, we don't see. And yes, we don't understand. Will you help us see? But they did not ask because they were just so sure that they can see the way they ought to see. So again, after that two-stage miracle of the blind man, Jesus instructs the disciples on his death and resurrection and how they are to live in light of the death and resurrection and the constant theme. Now, please listen to this. The constant theme, which is running through chapters 8 and 9 and 10 with these kind of bookend uh, blind men made to see miracles the theme which the disciples were having an awful time seeing is at least threefold. One, they needed to see clearly what it actually means that Jesus is the Messiah. Not the Messiah of their imagination, not the Messiah of popular opinion, but the Messiah which was predicted in their Old Testament. Two, they needed to see clearly the need of a cross. So when a person sees their need of a cross, there's, uh, sees that there's no way they could ever be right with God Right? So endless uh, religious endeavors, not going to do it. Endless works, not going to do it. Endless ceremony, not going to do it. Therefore, they see that their need is so desperate, they only have one hope. Cry out for mercy. That's the good news. Apply the cross to me, Jesus. Apply the cross to me. And the third thing is the question set before them, will I be a servant like my master Jesus? Well, or am I going to argue for position and power? Am I going to argue for position and power that if I get it, it's going to appear like I don't need any mercy? Rather, it's going to appear like I got what I deserve, which was the best. I don't need mercy. I just want what I think I deserve. That was James and John when they asked for the seats of power. So what we find here in the disciples is they are blind. And listen carefully. They are blind to the significance of the very thing they're professing. They are blind to the significance of the very thing they are professing. And I wonder, could that be any of us here this morning? We're blind to the significance of the very thing we're professing. They're blind to the true nature of the Messiah, Jesus. They're blind to the necessity of the cross. And they're blind to the true nature of what it means to actually follow Jesus. They're behaving like critics and customers. When Jesus says, no, 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 you're not to be a critic, you're not to be a customer, you're to be a servant to all. Hence, chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus tells them about his death, and what does Peter say? The, the audacity to rebuke Jesus Christ. Jesus, all this dying talk, crazy talk. You need to stop. Peter's blind. Chapter 9, verse 33, after Jesus tells them about his death and resurrection again, the 12 are on the road, you know this, they're arguing about who's the greatest. They need to stop. They're blind. And of course, in the section of chapter 10 we just covered, 
The third time he tells them about his death and resurrection, true to form, James and John go for the power grab and they want Jesus to do whatever they ask. And they don't ask something like, Jesus, you are so good and you are so powerful. Jesus, save the world. Jesus, save the world. No. Jesus, give us whatever we want. Because they still think that the way up is up. And greatness, and maybe even godliness, is having everything just the way we would like it. And so they push themselves forward to get what they want. So I need to ask you, do you believe me when I say there's more here than meets the eye? There is more than me- here than meets the eye. And by the way, who's really blind? I mean, yeah, Bartimaeus is blind. He's physically blind, but spiritually, he's seeing, he sees everything just fine. And one of the reasons why we know that is he says everything just right. He asks the right things. And he, and he thinks and does the right things. So I've been reading what I think is a terrific book. It's got a really catchy title. Some of you will like this, Hearing the Spirit. It's written by Christopher Ashe. I chose the book because I said, you know what? I need a little more help understanding the work of the Spirit. There's a section entitled, The Spirit, the Word, and the Cross. Subtitle, God Blinds Proud Eyes. It's based on his exposition of the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. He quotes John chapter 1240. He, God, has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. John chapter 12, verse 40. And this is what Mr. Ash says. God himself in just judgments upon human pride, dooms the humanist project to failure. We are by nature utterly blind and hard-hearted to the things of God. We cannot think clearly and accurately about God, and no human techniques can enable us to do so. We must not begin to claim we see as the Pharisees said they could and the disciples thought they could. We must not begin to claim we see by our own autonomous thinking and initiative. Only when God reveals himself to us and the Father is made known to us will we begin to see. That's number one. More than meets the eye. The disciples, crowds, truly blind. Point number two, eyes made to see. Now the context here is the Passover is near. So there is a, as by way of tradition, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And that pilgrimage coincides with Jesus' march to the cross. And this is why we find, if you see this, verse 46, Jesus, his disciples, and the large crowds, they're all kind of moving together. So it might help you to have in your mind's eye Jesus walking through Jericho, and there's blind Bartimaeus, verse 46, sitting by the roadside, begging. Okay, that was routine for him. He was blind. At the time, there wasn't much more he could do if he was going to live. So he was reduced to begging. And so Jesus and the group were leaving the city, verse 47. Bartimaeus hearing, right? His, his eyes are blind, so his ears are kind of working double time. Hearing that it was Jesus of Nazareth, began to shout for him. Okay, so why does he shout? Well, it's Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, you're sitting there all day, almost every day, and when you do that, you hear a lot of things. Some good things, some bad things. Those of you that go to coffee houses routinely like I do, you know that. You sit there and you listen to people talk at times. You can't help it. I can't help it at least. You hear some good things. You can hear some bad things. There was a fellow that comes in there often and he says the same thing over and over again. In fact, 
during Christmas holiday, I was in there by myself, and I played this little game where I got my napkin out and got my pen, and he started talking. I'm like, I'm going to start writing down everything he's saying. He was like, oh, he said that. Oh, he said that. He's going to talk about the war. Oh, okay, did that. All right. Parents, good. All right. There it is. So you understand what was happening. So the word was clearly out about Jesus. And what do you know? Blind Bartimaeus may have said to himself, he's here. He's actually here. And I'm blind. And they say that he's the Messiah. And you know, I heard that it was foretold the Messiah. In fact, I think I heard that Jesus of Nazareth preached a sermon in Nazareth. And he said something like, this is the year of the Lord's favor. And blind people are going to be made to see. And today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And guess what? I'm blind. And the word on the street is this Jesus guy can heal people like me. And you know, I am so tired of this dead way of life. And so, as you can imagine, shout number one, verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And by the way, why did he use that name, son of David? I'm not exactly sure, but I do know this. The scripture says that Messiah would come from the line of David. So maybe he wanted to shout that to get Jesus' attention. And what do you know? It worked. He got his attention. But the group, there's always the group, right, which the disciples were a part of. Look at your Bible, verse 44. They just learned this lesson. Whoever wants to be great and whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. So they just learned that lesson. They hear the blind man screaming out for Jesus. And what do they say? You see it there. My dear sir, however can we help you? Is that what they say? No, what do they say? Well, you see it there, right? The Passover's coming. There's no time to stop for a person like this. And besides, this is so routine. There are blind guys everywhere. They're always begging. There's lots and lots of them. And if you think about it, if you've ever been put in this scene where you have all these people, and we'll get to this in a second, but you have all these people basically shouting out you to zip it, it is very, very dehumanizing. And the fact that they are with the Son of God, that does not change their behavior at all, right? Didn't you do that when you are a kid? When you're in the room and you're behaving some way, but your parents came in, at least I did, it was like, Whoop. Dad? More so mom, but, you know, they didn't even do that. And so there's this guy, and he's so lonely, he's so sick. And, you know, oftentimes when you see people so often, that it can come to a conclusion that you don't see them anymore. Which maybe, maybe that's why Mark gave this, this guy's name. He's a real person. He matters to God. Don't dehumanize him. Now, you know what they're thinking. I mean, it's pretty obvious. They don't want to waste their time on a blind man. On the way back, maybe when the trip is over, we'll take a collection or something like that. Everybody will feel great. But now we're with Jesus. And, you know, some of us are leaders. And we're going to Jerusalem. And there's some great things. I know there's going to be some great things that take place. So shut up, blind man. Verse 48. Zip it. Loved ones, this is what we need to know. What we see here is how a person can be a follower of Jesus, and yet at the same time be a barrier to the very people who need him. Catch that again, right? A person can be a follower of Jesus, and yet at the same time be a barrier to the very people who need him. I mean, it makes you want to ask the question, how is it possible to be a follower of Christ and at the same time be a barrier for the people to come to Christ? Could the church This church, could any church be a barrier to people actually coming with their cries who want to meet Jesus? I mean, you're sensible people. I think you know the answer. I mean, just think of it just on a practical level, 
right? Pastor's always like, hey, evangelize. Hey, invite people. And so maybe you do, and you're like, okay, I'm going to invite this guy to church. And, you know, he might need a ride. And if they come, then I'm probably going to have to sit with them, and I'm going to talk with them. And you know what? I bet they're going to want to have to eat afterwards. You know? I feel like a slave to this guy, right? It's just too much. I'm their slave, and it's summer, and the clock is ticking. Snow is coming, and I got to work tomorrow. What do you want me to do? And besides the fact that when we reach out, sometimes we reach out to only our kind of people. I like people who are rich and, and young and a bit religious with some leadership skills, like a rich young ruler, but not like a blind, probably dirty beggar. They'd be last on my list. So again, verse 48, many rebuke him. And by the way, you can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, the many didn't simply tell Bartimaeus one time to zip it. No, the Greek implies that they actually gave him a lecture on why he ought to pipe down. Isn't that remarkable? And of course, we would all like to think if we were in the group, we would do better or maybe speak up on the guy's behalf. But who really knows? I mean, everybody from time to time, I think, we imagine ourselves far beyond our capacities. Still, Bartimaeus, verse 48, undaunted by the censor, he's at it again. Shout number two, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't want justice, does he? He wants mercy. What do you want from Jesus? Do you want justice or do you want mercy? I can say this with all the love of my heart. You will never know Jesus as a true reality in your life until you see him as an absolute necessity. You'll never call out for a savior until you're aware of your sin. You'll never call out for eyes that need to be made to see until you're actually aware that you're blind. And you know, now listen carefully, you know that you know Jesus as a necessity when you find yourself asking continually, for his mercy. Let me say that again. You know that you know Jesus as a necessity when you find yourself consistently asking Jesus for his mercy. So what follows, thank God this follows, are two sets of two of the greatest words I think I've read in a long, long while. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and then said, call him. Isn't that beautiful? He stops, call him. And Mac, maybe just do this if you want to. Close your eyes for a minute. Put yourself in the crowds, right? The pain, the suffering, the loss uh, that Bartimaeus has knows uh, because of his condition. But that pain can be so clarifying, can it? We spend so much time in our life trying to avoid pain, avoid suffering, and avoid loss. Forgetting that that was the way of Jesus. That was the way of the cross, This man's pain and this man's suffering and this man's loss made him see things absolutely clearly when the disciples and the crowds were just flat out blind. So I want you to have this picture in your mind that people are saying, look, look, you blind man, who do you think you are? Crying out like this, this is Jesus. We're on our way to Jerusalem. The kingdom is coming. You know, we got to get moving on. You're wasting our time. And don't you know, and in the middle of that, Jesus says, call him. This is how I imagine the rest of the conversation. Like I was about to say, don't you know Jesus wants you? So verse 49, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. My son and I watched a movie last Saturday night. 
I won't tell you the title because I don't want you to judge me, but it was a good movie, PG. But anyway, there's a scene in the movie where there is a, a leader and he's surrounded by the other leaders and there's a lady who says something and the leader says, oh, no problem. But the other leaders around him go, oh, that's going to be a problem. And then the leader says, oh, no, no, what I meant was no problem, as in no, there's going to be problem. That's the crowds. They're giving the guy the business. Jesus basically says, stop it. Verse 49, cheer up. I mean, how, what was their emotional change there in, in a nanosecond? Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Then verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. All week long, I was wondering, this guy's blind. Doesn't someone want to help him to get Jesus? I mean, nothing like that in the text. So I was picturing in my mind, he's bumping into walls, he's bumping into wheels, bumping into cows, bumping into people just to get to Jesus. It's great, isn't it? Jesus stops. Why does he stop? Well, he's going to help the man, but he also wants the crowd and the disciples to hear what he's going to tell them. Tell him. They want them to hear and learn the lesson which they needed to know. Which takes us to our final point, the question that changes everything. It's such a lovely question. It's a wonder that the Son of God would ever ask it. What do you want me to do for you? That's the question of a servant. How can I help you? On some level, what do you want me to do for you could be considered a pretty ordinary question until you consider who is actually asking that question here. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the creator of the universe. And he's asking a mere man, what can I do to help you? I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive. By nature, if I was God, I'd be telling you what to do. Not me asking you what you would like me to do. I mean, think, what is the true servant? Which one is the true servant? I want you to do this for me. Or what do you want me to do for you. And you see, what separates Jesus Christ from all the religions of the world and all the people of the world, Jesus says this, and again, please listen, you need me. I know you do, and I want to serve you. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to drink the cup, verse 38 of chapter 10 for you. I'm going to go undergo that awful baptism for you. I'm going to be raised to life for you. I'm in heaven right now for you, interceding for you, standing before your place, uh, before God, and I'm making you a new home, ready for you. Everything I do, to quote Brian Adams, everything I do, I do it for you on your behalf. I'm your servant, even though I'm your king. Therefore, the question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I want you to embrace that question just for a moment. In fact, imagine Jesus Christ is asking you that question right now. What do you want me to do for you? And, and after everything I just said about what Jesus has done and is doing right now for you, what would you ask for? What would you ask for? I'm not going to tell you what you should ask for. I can tell you what I would ask for. And by the way, it took me a while to get here. My first answer wasn't too good. But I came to this conclusion. This is what I would ask for in light of everything that Jesus has done and is doing for me. Weak is the effort of my heart. Cold my warmest thoughts. But when I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. What do you want me to do for you, Joe? I want to praise you proper, Jesus. I'm going to live for you proper. 
Jesus. Because everything you do, you're doing it for me. Verse 51, Rabbi, I want to see. What do you want me to do for you? I want to see. And by the way, Rabbi, that's the same title that Jesus was given by another person who was the least and the last and the lowest, Mary Magdalene. Remember, she suffered terribly under the dark powers of hell. She was a third-class citizen, essentially. Some people thought she was a hussy. Jesus heals her. She, in turn, supported his ministry financially. And she was one of the ladies that was with Jesus to the very end. And what makes that word, that title, so significant is that here, this is intense personal devotion, meaning this is actually a confession of faith that this man is making. How do we know it? Well, look at the text. After Jesus... He, after he tells Jesus, I want to see, he does see, which makes Jesus reply what? Verse 52, completely appropriate. Go. Your faith has saved you. You see, when he said rabbi, he was making a claim of faith, which is why Jesus said what he said in verse 52. Go. Your faith has saved you, which means that Bartimaeus saw that in Jesus, his faith had found a resting place. Not that the faith was the cure. Rather, his faith was was the means by which he received from Jesus. In other words, this is what happens. Bartimaeus encounters Jesus' power, not on the basis of his strength, but in the context of his weakness. Right? So the crowds tell him, basically, shoo, shoo, hush, hush. Because they determined that he had nothing to contribute at all to what Jesus was doing. And they were absolutely right. However, they thought because he had nothing to contribute... That disqualified him from help. And they didn't understand that this actually was the basis for his his help. In a phrase, it wasn't them. Well, let me say it like this. It was them and not Bartimaeus who were blind. Bartimaeus brought nothing to Jesus but his need. And that's why he got helped on the basis of his need. And on the basis of Jesus' adequacy to fully meet that need. You know, sometimes I grow tired of the, the, the muscular Christianity, right? So you do this and you do that and you get all your ducks in a row and you're just going to be so, oh. You're not going to have a need ever again. No, my need makes me adequate Come to Jesus so that my Savior, who is adequate, can meet my need. Jesus, have mercy on me and, and heal my blind eyes. And so you see it there by God's grace. He sees. And he also sees what other people missed. And he gives, he's given mercy and he's given sight. Now, if you're thinking for a moment, this kind of sounds like a picture of the gospel, then you're right. Good for you. Because you see, one of the ways that that God's word explains the predicament of men and women is he says that we're blind. So the disciples, spiritually blind, and they need to see. How do they see? How does anyone see? Step number one, I'm blind. Step number two, Jesus, help me. Have mercy on me. I need to see. Jesus, I don't want what I think I deserve. Jesus, I need what I know I don't deserve. Mercy, right? Get that in your head. Jesus, I do not want what I think I deserve. Jesus, I need what I know I don't deserve. Mercy. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there 
Multiply it for me. We sing these songs. We sing it today. Oh, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. So when you read a story like this and you understand it proper, it tells me that Jesus still hears the cries for mercy, that he still cares, that Jesus still stops. Jesus still works all things out for our good and and, and his glory. And of course, Jesus still saves And anyone who calls on him will be saved. So what do you say? You're sitting there. If I said, are you blind? Are you blind? If you are, would you say something like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me? Just there in your seat in your head. I'm so blind spiritually that I'm as blind as uh, Bartimaeus was physically. I'm so blind that I'm trying to make myself acceptable to you. I'm so blind that sometimes I think, you haven't been fair with me, God. So Jesus, I'm going to need your help. Because I want to see. Because I'm starting to see that when you went to the cross, you went there to set me free. So I could see. Well, at the beginning or near the beginning, I said to you, I wonder if this was going to be the last chance that some of you would have to hear the gospel. Remember, that wasn't a scare tactic. That was just reality. Because it could very well be. And this morning, Jesus has stopped. And I know that he's calling you. And I hope that you're so afraid of the darkness that you are in that you'll cry out like like a child who's afraid of the dark and say something like, Jesus, save me. Save me. Turn the lights on. Remember? When you were a kid, turn the lights on. And Jesus does. Jesus does. The end of verse 52 is a beautiful picture of the work of the gospel. You see it there? Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. Followed Jesus. Let's pray together as we prepare for communion. If those who will be serving would just come forward, please, and I'll be there in just a moment. Father, if we are blind, will you have mercy on us and help us see? For Jesus' sake, amen.